Hello listeners, my name is Tashara and welcome to another episode of the LSE Focal Point podcast. Today I'm very excited to be joined by Ned Salter. Ned is a global head of investment research at Fidelity International. He started his career at Putnam Investments and has since been at Fidelity for over eight years holding previous positions such as head of equities and head of research. Ned holds a bachelor's degree in economics from Kenyon College and an MBA from Harvard Business School. Ned, how are you doing today? Doing really well. Thank you so much for having me. Great to hear. And it's great to have you here today. So to kick things off, could you tell us a little bit more about your journey to becoming the global head of investment research at Fidelity International? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to. And in fact, you know, I think everyone in their career has the LinkedIn version and the non-LinkedIn version. And I'm very happy to share with you the non-LinkedIn version of my career, because I think that's everyone has one. And it's always a bit life is always a bit messier in real life than it looks on paper. So I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts in the US, and I went to, as you mentioned, Kenyon College. Most people probably haven't heard of it. It's a liberal arts college in the cornfields of Ohio. And it's not really the right school to go to if you want to end up working in finance or really in any particular trade, so to speak. It's really like an academic institution where many people go on to become lawyers or professors. And so I really didn't know what I was going to do for my life. I think many people with liberal arts degrees are great analytical thinkers. You have this analytical toolkit that you've developed, problem-solving skills. But, you know, I had I had no sort of any idea about what I wanted to do for a career. So it was the first internet bubble, the proper one, not the current one, but the first one in the late 90s when I graduated from, from college, university, and I joined a startup. And that startup went from being valued by Goldman Sachs for hundreds of millions of dollars to bankrupt within a very short period, about six weeks when the sort of bubble burst. And so I really needed to figure out what I was going to do at that point. And so I looked around and I spoke to friends and colleagues and said, what am I good at? They said, you're pretty analytical. Maybe you should become an analyst. And so I, I looked around Boston and and I found the organization that had the best training program. I really needed to be trained because I had this liberal arts education and no technical education. And so I, I heard of a firm called Putnam Investments. I couldn't get a job there because I didn't go to the right university. So I wrote eight handwritten letters to the chief executive and managed to eke out an interview um, out of that, that process and was really lucky enough to get the job at Putnam. And the rest, I think, has been just an unbelievable trajectory of, of someone who learned how to be an analyst, how to try to make money for clients, how to select securities, how to become a portfolio manager. And then in recent years, as you mentioned, I've been at, at Fidelity, I guess I'm in my ninth year now. And I really wanted to kind of like scratch the itch of managing people, not just managing money. And that's a bit where I am in my career at this moment in time, really managing people who manage investment professionals. Great. That's a great journey to hear and especially very interesting to hear the non-LinkedIn journey and, you know, really goes to show that it is so much deeper than what we see on the surface. So I'm sure a lot of us are very curious about what your day-to-day looks like. So could you provide us with some insight into your daily routine? Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to. The thing about asset management is, to me, it's one of the best industries you can be in because the best part of our job is that it matters as much that you know how much a cup of Starbucks coffee costs as a barrel of oil, as what the interest rate differentials are between Japan and the United States for the yen carry trade. 
So we get paid to think big thoughts. And that is a really blessed position that we're in. And so I just wanted to start with that to sort of characterize really the variability of our days. So I come into work, I'm obsessed with the news, I read the New York Times, I read the FT, I scan through my Bloomberg. I also <clears throat> am able to read Fidelity's analysts, hundreds of them, their proprietary investment research. And that's really how my day starts. What's going on in the world? What are the trends that our analysts and portfolio managers are observing within the context of you know, a crazy sort of geopolitical background, which I'm sure we, we can talk more about in our discussion. Um, another part of my day might might be joining our investment teams to meet with the chief executive. You know, our investment professionals at Fidelity meet executive teams 15,000 times a year. I think that means that once every 10 minutes, a, a Fidelity team is meeting with a management team somewhere in the world. So I join those meetings. Obviously, I speak to our clients. It's a very big part of my role, be they institutional clients, be they wholesale clients, or even meeting with people you know, who are more retail oriented. This is part of our job. We are here to deliver for our clients. And so that variability of my day is, I guess, what gets me out of bed in the morning. Right. That definitely sounds like a lot of variety indeed. We spoke earlier about your career and how you got to where you were. And you did mention, you know, some of the challenges you had, especially with, you know, getting your foot in the door. So I'm sure there are other challenges that you face. But what would you say has been sort of the greatest challenge that you've faced in your career? And what did you do to overcome that? Really good question. I think, you know, I talked about, you know, my first company going out of business and, and we've talked a little bit about that. You know, the best investors in the world, people like Warren Buffett are probably only right 60% of the time, which means you're wrong 40% of the time, four times out of 10. So failure has to be part of who you are in order to be a successful investor. And so I think that, you know, having my startup go out of business sort of set me up to become better at failure later in life. I mean, I think the biggest challenge investors face is losing money for your clients. I mean, you know, this is, we manage people's savings effectively, their hard earned money. And so losing money as a, as a PM or an analyst is really challenging. It's challenging emotionally. And the biggest challenge you face is within the world of investing, you have process and outcome. In a, a state of nirvana, you have good process and good outcomes. I mean, that's, that's the nirvana for, the, for, for investors. But sometimes process and outcome diverge. You can have a really exceptional investment process and yet you still put up bad returns. And that's the nature of working in capital markets where the capital market is made up of millions and millions of insecure participants. And so sometimes you get this divergence. And that didn't stress me out. You know, good process, bad outcome, that doesn't stress me out. And if you work for an organization that believes in you and supports you and you have good process, bad outcome, which of course, Fidelity is that kind of place, that's not bad. It's the times when you question that your process needs to be refined were the times that were most stressful. I mean, those were the hardest times. So what did I do about it? I sought advice. You shed the ego. You speak to experienced investors. You speak to your CIO, your head of research, fellow portfolio managers, and you, you for the benefit of the clients, you continually try to reinvent and reinvestigate your investment process. And that just takes humility. And so, the, you know, that was the hardest time in my career when I had to evolve my process. And what I did about it was ask for help. 
No, definitely a very challenging situation to be in and really goes to prove the importance of having a great team and, as you say, humility. So moving on to one of my personal favorite questions, what have been some of the most influential books that you've read? It's a tough one because people who know me know that I don't read as much as I should. And again, I've always been ashamed to say that, you know, my learning profile is much more experiential learning, learning from the people around me than, than learning, I guess, more academically. Maybe my Harvard Business School professors would agree with that statement. But in any case, no, I do read. And one of the things that I, I read most recently, I, my former CIO, gave me a book called Rebel Ideas, The Power of Diverse Thinking, I think by Matthew Syed. And it was really about yeah, diversity on teams. And my takeaway from this book was that homogenous teams, you know, teams of like-minded individuals, they report very high levels of satisfaction. They really enjoy their jobs because everyone's sitting around patting each other's back saying, great idea great idea, terrific, you're a genius. But they report also low levels of decision-making efficacy. Diverse teams, I think you know where this is going, diverse teams report high levels of decision-making efficacy, i.e. better outcomes. But when asked how they felt about it, it's a lot harder because being challenged in the moment and constantly being challenged to think about different perspectives is harder than always being agreed with. And so that book to me was really telling. And I guess it informed my leadership style, you know, in meetings where you're discussing difficult topics and you're challenging people, um, you have to be aware that the process of being challenged is difficult. So you need to create the conditions in those meetings to elevate challenge, but not do it in a way that makes people feel threatened or worse, be quiet. Because what you need in those times is to pull out those good ideas from people, but try to make it as painless as possible. So that was a that was a book that really helped shape, you know, it was a great realization and it helped shape my leadership style as well. Great. That sounds like a great book. And it ties in really well with the discussion that we were just having about working with such diverse teams and trying to harmonize them. So we've spoken quite a bit about your career journey, your your management style. And earlier you mentioned about how your job on a day-to-day basis is so is so varied. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the economy. And so how is Fidelity thinking about the current macroeconomic environment? And what are analysts seeing on the ground in the 15,000 management meetings per year that you mentioned? Yeah, so I think if if we kind of just park the geopolitical side of things, because we, we happily come back to that. Obviously, we have geopolitical tensions between the US and China. There's a war going on, that, this tragic war that we're all very aware of. And then, of course, you know, the sort of inflationary pressures and the interest rate pressures that are taking place. When we, our analysts all work together and speak to their companies, as we mentioned, you know, all the time, the companies that they cover and invest in are investee companies. I guess the first thing I would say, you know, we're talking a lot about this impending recession and you read about it in the paper. I mean, 60% of our analysts say that their sectors are already in a slowdown, a shallow recession or worse. So the, the, the lived experience of the companies, forgetting about the capital markets for a moment, but the lived experience of the companies is that their end markets are, are already in a, in a significant slowdown. But when we ask our analysts, okay, 
you know, capital markets are a discounting mechanism. So tell us what's going to happen in 12 months time. And there the picture is quite different. More than half of our analysts see the fundamentals of the companies that they follow in 12 months time to be beyond the trough or in an expansion. Now, I'm not making a call on does that mean that capital markets aren't going to suffer in the interim period, but I guess it's just to say that the analysts see that the fundamentals will have troughed and we will be expanding 12 months from now, at least in more than, 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 than half the companies. Now, of course, a lot of that will be driven by China, and China is in a separate macroeconomic cycle to a lot of the rest of the world. Now with reopening and sort of manufacturing coming back post-COVID, ending of restrictions. But it's also Europe, you know, and there it's really a base effect. You know, it's that, you know, Europe tends to is, is currently in slowdown in, in, in a lot of parts of the economy. And so in 12 months from now, not only will you have China going from sort of good to better, but you'll have Europe going from weak to OK. And that is a powerful base. Effect. And then, of course, from the sectors, we see, again, some, some, some mean reversion, whether that's in communication services, which suffered last year, industrials, which is suffering at the moment, you know, and it's sort of a turnaround in financials and materials. So life is looking from a fundamental perspective better in 12 months time than it is today. Great. That's definitely great to hear that, you know, even though we are in quite a challenging environment right now, that, that there is hope 12 months down the line. So... One of the hottest topics most recently has been sustainable investing. So what does sustainable investing mean to Fidelity and what role specifically does it play in your investment process? So I want to be slightly irreverent here, but I guess, you know, I I have a huge amount of conviction that sustainable investing is just investing. It is not something other. It is not something other than. You know, we don't have a team of people that's that invest in poor companies, you know, unsustainable companies, terrible companies, companies that don't have an awareness of their impact on stakeholders. And then we have a team of people, people that invests in, in quote unquote, good companies or sustainable companies. You know, to, to us, investing sustainably is just the day job of investing. And so, you know, I think one should imply, one should infer from that, that comment that, you know, the model at Fidelity is one of full integration, that the, the principles of sustainable investing are embedded in the process of security selection. And so that's really the goal that we are, we are aiming, to, aiming to achieve. We do embed, you know, so what have we done? You know, we've built a series of toolkits that our analysts and portfolio managers can use when assessing their security selection decisions. You know, when I was growing up in the investment business, we really only worried about revenue, margins, incremental margins, operating leverage, balance sheets, and cash flows. And the toolkit that we had was a financial toolkit. We spent years building additional toolkits, which is how well do our investee companies manage the negative externalities that their operations create. All businesses create negative externalities. A company that's sustainable manages those risks really well and diminishes those risks through through their management action and activity. And so we tend to favor companies that manage those negative externalities really well and consider the full suite of stakeholders. 
not just shareholders, all stakeholders. I mean, ultimately, that will be better, not just for Fidelity's clients, but in effect, it will be better for the capital markets in, in aggregate, that capital is diverted to the companies that manage sustainability well. So that's really the approach. It's maybe slightly irreverent, but it is, it's our day job is to invest sustainably. That's what our clients are asking us for. No, that, that's great. And definitely great to hear that at Fidelity, there is real, no real distinction between investing and sustainable investing. And I, and I suppose one of the things that is sort of in the way of sustainable investing becoming completely mainstream is perhaps some of the challenges that still remain with it. Um, mm-hmm. What would you say are these sort of key challenges and how can they best be addressed in the coming years? So, I mean, I do think we need to think about attribution and engagement. I'm not actually that worried about attribution. What I mean by that is, you know, Fidelity's analysts are engaging with our investee companies to improve their mitigation of these negative externalities. I'm thrilled when my competitors are also doing the same thing because you're, you're improving total social return at that point. The more people that engage on a similar topic, the more likely it is to happen. And so I think the capital markets need to figure out whether it matters if it was fidelity itself that triggered the change or the sum total of the pressure within the capital markets. I require and I insist that our analysts and PMs are participate in that process of engagement, but I'm not that fussed about attribution, to be honest. I'm happy that my competitors are speaking the same language. So I think that is a challenge that we need we need to address. You know, and then I think a, a second challenge in the field of sustainable investing is determining what are the KPIs that we're going to measure? Because traditionally in fund management, you measure financial return. And you know, if you're a good investor, you have good financial return, whether it's relative or absolute. And if, if you don't have good financial return, you're, you're not a great investor. But as the needs of society change, and as asset owners who give us their money to manage on their behalf, say, I want financial return and something else, you know, and a double materiality, so to speak. How do we measure success as capital allocators? And, you know, we could, we could talk for hours about that. But I think that ultimately that is a challenge that needs to be addressed at the industry level in coming years. Great, great to hear. And definitely some challenges that do need to be addressed in the future. So Ned, we've had a very interesting discussion about your career journey, you know, some of your favorite books, as well as sort of the general macroeconomic environment, as well as sustainability. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, I can tell you now. I mean, the one thing I would say is for people who are thinking about their career ahead of them, I would say, try to shed all your aspiration for status and brand equity and just focus on doing things that give you joy because ultimately that's where you'll be your best self. And if I can look back on the last 20 something years of this career, the times where I focused on external validation of my success, were the times where I made the worst decisions. And the times where I focused on fulfillment is actually where I delivered the best outcomes for myself and for the clients whose money I manage. 
And so I guess that would be my main sort of, I guess, career advice that I would love to share with anyone at LSE or anyone else who's listening. And then the only other piece of advice I would say is get yourself a puppy. They lower the levels of cortisol, the stress hormone, and please adopt, don't shop. That's some great advice, something that I'm sure we can apply to our lives and also some very practical advice about the puppy. So Ned, thank you so much for spending time with us today. It was great hearing your thoughts and I'm sure that our listeners can take a lot away from this episode. And thank you to our audience and stay tuned for more episodes to come. Thanks for having me.